Welcome back everybody, Conrad's Corner. Thank you very much as always for joining. Today, special guest, really excited about this one. SIOR current president and newly appointed COO of Avis & Young Canada, Ted Davis. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. This will be fun. Uh, a long time coming, and I say that because we've known each other since, I mean, we're dating ourselves, but early 2000s. <laughs> I don't know if I'm willing to date myself. All right. Yeah, early 2000s. We have to. We have to because we've been through a lot, and it's like a badge of honor. We get to wear it, and we get to talk about the fact that 2000s, early 2000s, in the thick, in the trenches, we were there for you and I at that time, Cushman and Wakefield. Yes. Subsequently, uh, we both gone different directions in our career. You, as I just mentioned, current president, SIOR. Yes. And congratulations, my friend, newly appointed COO, Avis and Young Canada. Thank you. Yeah, very excited for it. Yeah, really, really excited for you as well. Great times. But let's, as they say, let's start at the beginning. So sure. uh, tell me about the early days. What got you into commercial real estate? So, uh, as you pointed out, Cushman and Wayfield at the beginning, um, started with a mentor, worked in research as well. I think really it was just a general interest in real estate and business. One of the exciting things to me about this business and why I really got into it was the ability to see behind the curtain on a whole bunch of different companies and industries. Being able to walk into a manufacturing building and understand how a tool die stamping is, and then at the same time, then going into an office building and understanding how a law firm needs to be structured. That was really exciting to me at the beginning. And commercial real estate was kind of one of those industries that allowed me to do that. Did you know coming out of school, like where did you go to school? Did you decide in school that you were going to do this? Or no, come... not, not necessarily. Again, one of my drivers was business. I okay. knew that I was interested in business. I come from a family of entrepreneurs, but I didn't necessarily know the direction that I wanted to go in. I chose real estate because it gave me as much exposure to business in general within Canada. Yep. Being able to then roll into it and find out how exciting real estate was, commercial real estate was in particular, that's really what got things going and that was 20 years ago. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. Uh, same thing likewise for me, myself as well. I had a family who had a little bit of real estate background, but I knew for me on the business side coming from a university business background that that was probably where I was going to gravitate. And, you know, I used to make the joke with my grandmother, who was one of the first women licensed with a real estate license in Canada, that I, I never wanted a deal to fall apart because of the color of a bathroom or something like that. Yeah. So I knew that I was going commercial. We had some connections. But you mentioned something quickly there. You said an industrial building, and you said also about an office like a law firm. So were you doing a jack-of-all-trades, or were you focusing on one? So at the very beginning, I was, because I didn't truly understand what direction I wanted to go in. So I, it didn't take me very long to really narrow in on industrial and development mm -hmm. land was where my focus then became, um, especially connecting with the mentors that I did within the offices. That was the focus. There was a little bit of background there, just my understanding and some part-time jobs that I did in school, kind of in the trucking industry. Right. I liked, I gravitated towards industrial because I liked seeing the different components, how real estate kind of played into it. So it wasn't necessarily the interior design but it was some of more of the variables that needed to be within buildings that allowed those companies to run, whether it was power or truck level doors or ceiling height. That was very appealing to me to understand how the piece of real estate actually worked in with the company's operations. 
Yeah, and likewise, uh, I was with one of the industrial legends and industrial mentor with Goran Brelli. You started, obviously, with Ray yes. out in uh, the West End. So where, where were you focusing primarily? Remind me, was it with the Waterloo area? or? Yeah, so at the very beginning, it was Toronto West. Okay. But then as time continued on, where a lot of our business ended up going was taking clients who had operations in Toronto West, so Mississauga, Brampton, yeah. out that way, and then pulling them into southwestern Ontario. So... At that time, Milton wasn't built up the way mm -hmm. that it was now. And so it was Milton, Guelph, Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo. Part of that was driven by um, increasing or decreasing, sorry, vacancy rates that were in the GTA, as well as costs that people could find space that was cheaper <laughs> out west. I, I laugh now because you're talking about decreasing uh, vacancy rates. And at the time, it was probably, what, 4%, 5%, 10%. Now we're looking at less than 1% in the GTA or something like that. So it's funny. We laugh at that. And that was the impetus for moving people to the West. Okay. Now you can't even find industrial spaces in the GTA. No, it's it's always interesting. When you look at the history of the area, and this is this is really from a macro level and looking at real estate and how the effect is in cities, in different countries, I mean, it goes in a it goes in kind of a concentric circle of in a radius as to how it grows. Right. So you're either growing up or you're growing out. And so for industrial, because of the land requirement mm -hmm. of that, it usually grows out. Yeah. And so whether it was Etobicoke and then that grew into Mississauga, and then Mississauga grew into Milton, and then Milton has now jumped the green belt and grown into Hamilton, Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo, mm -hmm. dipping down into Woodstock. And if you follow those patterns from an economic standpoint, it kind of runs on a bull run right. and then in corrections it backs off a little bit and then you go and expand the next time around. So that to me is very interesting to look at how that expansion actually happens and then what effect that has on values of real estate. So it makes sense and to your point about expansion, then from there you went and you actually opened up a satellite brokerage, correct? I did. So what ended up happening is, is more and more business was going out to southwestern Ontario. There wasn't a lot of commercial brokerages in that area. Yeah. And so I went and opened up my own brokerage with Ray, yeah. who came a little bit afterwards. And at the time, we ended up doing a deal with uh, Avis and Young, who I'm now with now. And, and we were able to do that with a uh, as an affiliate agreement mm -hmm. and then continue to build the brokerage from there. Amazing, amazing. And uh, primarily, I'm assuming, since we're talking about it was mostly industrial, is this distri distribution? Is it warehouse? Is it trucking, cross dock? So in the end, it ended up being a mix. Okay. So we opened up offices in Waterloo region, London. We had an office in Hamilton for a little while, but we were able to service it out of Waterloo region. And our agents were a mix of asset classes. Mm. So those starting out in industrial, um, I would say to your point, I mean, depended on the market conditions, whether it was warehousing distribution, whether it was manufacturing, straight land development, that changed kind of year over year, depending on where market demand was. But we ended up covering all asset classes. So office development, industrial, we were dealing with everything. Amazing. It really has come full circle to see where things are. I remember early days, I mean, industrial wasn't really the bell of the ball. Yeah. It, we were doing deals in Etobicoke, $3, $3.50, $4. Um, you know, you and I know those those deals are long gone at this point now. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, I think that there's a couple effects on that. I mean, obviously, we've seen fluctuating demand. Uh, even some of that, it's cyclical, and that it's coming back now. I mean, one of the effects, if you look at one of the variables, 08, 09, we saw a fair bit of offshoring. Now, some of that manufacturing is coming back because yeah. of the difficulties that have happened with just three PLs and shipping, and realizing that onshoring is going to be an important piece. 
But then at the same time, e-commerce, which when you and I started or even yep. 10 years ago, did not have the presence that it does today. And the retailers weren't set up the same way with regards to distribution. Whereas now, it very much is a major component to be able to really not have bricks and mortar stores, but your warehouses mean that much more. And then even with regards to location, it used to be you wanted to be in a high traffic location versus location now for distribution centers, it's that last mile. And what I mean by that is being close to those neighborhoods so that when someone orders something, how quick can you get it delivered to their doors? Yeah, I mean, it certainly has changed. It's, it's interesting. We had John Crombie on and John Crombie spoke, you know, extensively about retail and what retail has been doing post-pandemic and how things are. We talked a fair amount about e-commerce, how it's gone one way during the pandemic. It's kind of swung back a little bit more. Great. We're talking about people buying online and picking up at store, talking about last mile. Um, do you think it's going to, the pendulum will settle down in some position? So I, I think, just from my experience in business and looking at different cycles, I think that that is almost always the case. I think that what happens is, is we swing from far left to swing to far right for the pendulum. Inevitably, we end up finding a balance. Right. Some of that is based on technology from a standpoint of something will become very strong or of high demand. And then as more and more people get into it, there's more money that goes into it, investment into technology. And so then you start to almost right size the industry. And I think that's what's happening with e-commerce now. I, I think so. I think we're seeing Amazon as an example and some of the other ones having to right size their portfolio a little yeah. bit, both on the office side and then in, in, invariably on the industrial side, the warehouse side as well. Um, it'll be interesting. Shipping costs are definitely something across our network that we hear from our agents from coast to coast. Um, you know, we've got examples where those large distribution companies are trying to get space in Alberta because mm -hmm. they can't get it in BC and then they're having to incur the cost of shipping. For, I mean, it's crazy when you think about it. The, the vacancy is so tight that we're in a different province. That's always what's been super interesting to me and going back to how you and I started in the business, that was always one of the drivers. So yeah. to me that everything comes down to a mathematical equation is super interesting to me. If you go and find a building, yeah, building's okay, but you know what? doesn't have enough truck level doors, mm -hmm. no problem. So we look at what the cost is to add truck level doors. Does that make a financial impact enough that it's worth doing? Same with shipping or same with trucking, train, whatever it ends up being, that's just a cost. So if I need to spend $18 a square foot for an industrial building, but my shipping costs are less because I'm that much closer to the end supplier mm -hmm. or who's gonna, the end user, or I could go farther afield, have cheaper lease rates, but higher, let's say, shipping costs, how does that math end up working? And a lot of our work was, a lot of our projects were based on that. They were based on taking those mathematical equations and applying them to find what the right solution was for the client. Yep, uh, taking the mathematical equations, running the surveys, putting it all together, yeah. sitting on, on PowerPoint and trying to drag and drop and put it together for a presentation. I mean, man, that's changed a lot too. Significantly. Like, <laughs> imagine the way we used to put listing pitches together and what agents today are, are trying to do. Never mind the social media. The so, I mean, what, what are you seeing today? What, are, what are they having to do? It is, I almost cringe when I start to find old files and pull it up on buildings. I'm like, I yeah. made this in a Word document? What was yeah, I yeah, thinking? Yeah. So now it's changed so much. I think the sophistication of the client, both on the seller and the buyer side or the landlord and the tenant side, the data points that are required now to make a decision, it's not just a, 
uh, as simple as saying what's the square footage that I'm going to need. Mm -hmm. There's so many more variables to that and that needs to be illustrated. It needs to be shown and that's really what our job is, is being able to identify and showcase the data around the property and then identifying who the right group is that. I think the most exciting thing about this business now is that it's easier almost to target mm -hmm. because you can start to narrow things down and say what are the variables that make this property unique? How am I going to illustrate that and who is the most logical person for it? But I mean the amount of technology and the way that properties are marketed today much different than what they used to be. Yep. I think it's also going to change as we continue to move forward. I mean, there's discussions about now VR and being able to showcase properties and architects are using it that way and developers are using VR to do that. I mean, we already know about digital floor plans yep. and aerial photos and with, done with drone, customized videos, social media. Those were all things that when you and I started, they just weren't there. No, and it's crazy, and, and not to say that those are table stakes now, but it's pretty close to that to understand that if you have, let's call it a significant listing of some sort, I mean, maybe not a thousand square foot listing, but something that, to your point, the return on the investment is going to have to be there to put it yeah. in. The expectation from the client is at minimum, you're going to have a feature sheet, maybe a brochure, some digital interactive stuff, you're going to have drone uh, videos, walkthroughs, Matterport. I mean, this is crazy. We never had to worry about that. Do you think that the expertise and the knowledge that the agents have to bring today is more? Is it different? Um, I think it's more in that you need to know what all the variables are, but it would be ignorant for us, for any of us to think that we're all going to be specialists in every different factor. I think that technology and surrounding ourselves by the right resources, the people who specialize in these pieces, that's what really brings a person together. Brokers in the truest sense are bringing people together. That couldn't be more true that maybe it used to just be two parties, a buyer and a seller. Now it's working closely with so many other specialists who come into play, whether it's about labor statistics or shipping costs or legal or any of the other variables that come in. I mean, to give an example, I mean, going through a pandemic, there's now pandemic clauses in yeah. leases. And what happens if we need to shut down? That was a variable that was never there. You have to have specialists who understand that to be able to start to structure these leases. Yeah, so you're almost acting like a facilitator at this point. You're facilitating yeah. with building conditions. You're facilitating with environmental, with legal. Um, to your point, maybe uh, about clear height and square footage, the things that we were uh, the number one and two priority when we were looking back in the day. Now, it's you know that's just an, an aside at that point. Yeah, uh, It's interesting to say that. So... When you are looking at new agents, is there anything specifically that you flag as must-haves or that you think is important? I think that a major piece of it, it used to be somewhat sales-focused. So yeah. it was personality and it was the ability to do that. That's table stakes now. Mm -hmm. I think to truly work as a professional, not only do you have to be perceived that way, but you need to perceive yourself that way. So the investment into education, the understanding of the training that's needing, the willingness to be able to sit with people, your mentors, the senior agents who are around, understand and learn from the client and truly make those decisions. To me, brokerage isn't sales, mm -hmm. not in the truest sense. To me, it's more consultative to, than that. Yeah. If I'm somebody and who has, I'm a client and I have a team around me, I have my lawyer and I have my accountant, and I have my investment manager, I have my real estate broker right along there with me, not because it's a sales 
uh, business, but because it is consultative. Yeah, it's another cog in the wheel. That's it. It's just part of your overall organization. You've got your in-house people, your external. Presumably, it's an external person yep. that is there to... That's interesting. Um, so you talk about networking and the ability to network. Mm -hmm. Let's use this as a bit of a segue to talk about SIOR, because sure. obviously that's a, a great, great... Um, Really, it's, it's a great organization that's been around for a while, and it's, it's good for young people to get involved in. Um, what would the general makeup of the group be right now? And, and is it older agents? Is it younger agents? Is it a mix in between? Good question. So it's, uh, I would say it's a bit of a mix. I mean, right now, just based on people, new people who are coming into the industry, those people who were hired 10, 15 years ago and have now kind of become those senior agents within the marketplace, it's a diverse, more diverse group. Um, it's more of a focus on the social impact in the industry challenges that we can face versus just a networking opportunity. Mm. For me, when I came into the business, that was kind of the core uh, industry group that a lot of people, especially in central Ontario yeah. or um, throughout the GTA, that people gravitated towards. Now that it still continues, with more of a focus on the education, the training, the social impact, and increasing kind of the diversity of the group. So I would say that it is a mix and is still being worked on and seeing new members. The, the membership has increased exponentially uh, over the last little while, which has been fantastic. I think that the impact that it's making is really, really good. And the mentality of people who are coming into it, because that is a big focus for SIOR, yep. is it's ethics and it's being well trained and offering the right thing not just to your peers but to your clients as well. So for those that don't know SIOR stands for? Society of Industrial and Office Realtors. Industrial and Office Realtors okay and then from there you are the Central Canada chapter president? I am so I've uh, I've been involved in SIOR for a while now I've sat on the board for a few years uh, vice president for the last two years and now as uh, just came in as president this year. Okay, and as president, your role is primarily to do what? So mine is to provide my opinion as to the general direction that SIOR goes. Uh, I'm involved with some of the other areas throughout Canada. And then we have a very, very strong board of directors who nice. has a clear focus and, uh, and can apply themselves, whether it be to events or to volunteer activities or investment or donation of money. Uh, good to know. For those that are interested and may want to know about how to get involved, are there any requirements to be part of SIOR? So there isn't to be part of SIOR with regards to attending events. Okay. To receive your designation, yep. there is process in there that part of it is experience, part of it is uh, time in the business as well as performance, and then part of it is education. But you can also join as an associate member as you start off and kind of go through that process. Gotcha. But it is open to everybody who's in the industry. Okay, uh, that's awesome. That's great to know. We'll actually put the link in the bottom so people can look into it and Excellent. find out a little bit about that. That's great. You said the membership's growing exponentially. Is that? Are you talking about globally, Canada, your chapter? All of the above. Nice. So uh, it's been nice to see at a time when we've seen mixed participation in different industry groups that SIOR continues to stay uh, an important piece of that and within the industry. Um, providing opportunities to both landlords and the broker side and events that are valuable for people who, uh, who work throughout our business. 
Okay, so when you say landlords, are landlords allowed to be part of it as well? They can, oh. yes. We have a number of landlords who, really anybody who is involved in commercial real estate, we see members from all different aspects of that. Okay. As president, um, your goals coming up, I mean, it's, listen, presumably it's for a calendar year, is that right? It, uh, yeah, it actually runs June to June. Oh, June to June. Okay, yep. so you've got... Uh, another year, give or take. Yep. Um, what are some of your goals that you'd like to focus on for SIOR? Two main focuses that I've always had with SIOR, obviously increased membership, and the second one as well is the social impact. Those two variables are the big ones that drive me. Any decisions that we make, so that has to do with the quality of the events that we have, mm -hmm. that has to do with the people who sit on the board, the general direction that we have. We want to make an impact. We yep. want to provide education and knowledge about the industry. We want to be able to work with people, whether they're new or even thinking about coming into commercial real estate, that we're there to mentor and that we're there to help and that we're not necessarily connected with any particular company, that we're doing this for the benefit of the industry. So coming out of the pandemic, are your events virtual? Are they in person now? What kind of events are you guys hosting? So we've switched to in person. Nice. Um, we've been doing so we have three or four main events. Uh, it's our spring conference that we do, which it's usually around education slash networking. Yeah, we have a golf tournament in the summer that just passed, yep. which we actually had uh, record attendance, we had over 270 golfers that were there. And then we'll have a fall event, again, in person, focused on education. Usually it's a panel. We've actually, last year, we partnered uh, with a city to do it. And so it was kind of a worked hand in hand. And then we have what we call the Broker of the Year Awards, which is kind of the large uh, award ceremony that we hold every year in December. Amazing. That's great. And then outside of that, presumably you have uh, other small events. Uh, what Around education, you, you mentioned education. Mm -hmm. Are you training Agents? Are you so there is. So there is. When you go on the website, there's a lot of uh, global level education pieces. As well, we do uh, some in person, uh, local networking events, whether it be focused on like our associates or emerging leaders, mm -hmm. uh, young professionals who are coming into the business, giving them the opportunity to understand, work with potential mentors, and uh, kind of get a feeling of the business before really getting into it. That's great. One of the things we've seen, and we had Robin Brown on the podcast earlier, and we talked a little bit about the makeup of the gender in, in the industry. What are you seeing in SIOR? Is it still predominantly male-oriented, uh, old boys network, or is it changing? I wouldn't say that it's old boys network. I do see in the industry in general, not just SIOR, I think that we still need to continue to promote diversification. Agreed. And I think a lot of that comes from education. I think there's a lot of people who don't truly understand what commercial real estate is. I think it starts from the beginning to be able to educate people, whether they're just coming out of school or even deciding what to take in school. Again, going back to when you and I started in the business, I mean, University of Guelph, Laurier, Western, they never had real estate courses. That yeah. just wasn't an option. Usually you went in, you took business or commerce, and then came into commercial real estate. And usually those people were because they knew somebody who was already in real estate. Yes. That's what needs to change. That educational component and making sure people understand that this is an exciting industry and one that is open to having new people in, that is the trick to create diversity in this industry. That's great. Um, do you guys get involved in terms of uh, apprenticeships or co-op programs or anything like that? We do. We have a mentorship program and that we're continuing to expand. We work with uh, different groups on re different regional levels yeah. 
Um, Central Canada chapter is actually rebuilding one of our mentorship programs now and again focusing just as much on students and bringing them through. We also have a scholarship program oh, for nice. those in university and we provide uh, donate towards scholarships and then obviously coming in one of the main focuses is going to these events and being able to see that mix of people. It's the people who have been in the business for 30 years and the ones that have been in the business for three years. And so making sure that those opportunities to network and understand the business come together. That's great. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's probably where the focus wants to be. It needs to be if you want to try and get the younger generation to understand that it's an exciting and um, one of the few careers that can give you the flexibility that you might not otherwise have. It's not, a, it's not a job. This is, I, I, like I tell people all the time when our agents coming in, this is a career. So Agreed. think about the long-term play here. Uh, phenomenal work with SIOR. That's great to hear. Uh, you have a one-year term? I have a one-year term. Okay. Uh, we had extended it out during the pandemic just because there wasn't as much that we were able to do on an in-person basis. But traditionally, we've always done one year. All right, that's that's amazing. Good good work. I'm glad to see that that's really grown for you guys, and um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years for Agreed. sure. Uh, let's go back a little bit to Avison mm -hmm. and your recent promotion. Yes, congratulations. So, thank you. Tell me, uh, was this planned? Did you know about it? Was it out of left field? How did this happen? I wouldn't say left field. I mean, obviously, there's a strategy around everything that is completed. My uh, So a little bit about my background as to how I got here that yeah. we were talking about is so I ran the affiliate office. I um, sold it and kind of rolled officially into Avis & Young, though we were always branded Avis & Young. We did, were acting as an affiliate. When I did that, I decided to stop selling real estate and went on the management side. Okay. So Part of that strategy is we saw a continual merge, as we have seen as an industry, of Toronto West and Southwestern Ontario because right. companies needed to continue to expand. So when people are looking for new spaces, they tend not to narrow it down geographically the way that they used to. So the strategy was is to have one person who can oversee those offices. And so that's been what I've uh, been working on the past three or four years. My background and what I enjoy is the strategy side of things. Mm. And what this role as Chief Operating Officer allows me to do is work in partnership with the other leaders to really look at how do we take that, how do we strategize with all the pieces that are in place and the changes happening in the industry, how do we apply that strategically? So that's really what I've been focusing on. It was something that was part of the strategy it works well for Avis and where Avis and Young is from a timeline standpoint and maturity of the business. Right. So I'm very, very excited to be involved in that. Well, absolutely, and, and rightly so. And congratulations again. That's exciting. Um, it's early days, so you probably can't speak to it too much. But out of the gate, anything that you'd like to point out in terms of early goals, things you'd like to see, anything in the industry that you're focusing on, anything specifically for Avison that you're focusing on, what are some of your early thoughts into the position? As you say, early days a little bit. I do think that the industry is changing. I think that there's a lot of variables that need to be brought into play. Real estate service companies, um, similar to the analogy that we were using that if you're a client, you have to have everybody at the table to make decisions. I think it's the same way with real estate. So if you look at developers, if you look at occupiers, so large tenants, mm -hmm. they need a lot of voices at that table. So I think that the if you look at the real estate service firms and how those decisions are being made, transaction services is one piece and an extremely important one, but there's partnerships in there that can come from different parts of the business that can support those decisions for the clients. 
That to me is one of the main focuses or a variable in how we do our business. It will be for Avis and Young. For sure, that's gonna be a major component, no doubt, going forward. Uh, the industry today, I see a lot of agents that are new agents asking me, and I'm interested in your opinion on this, should I be joining an existing team that's already developed, or can I go out on my own and just try and bird dog it and figure out how to do it all ad hoc? What are you seeing and what are you recommending to new agents coming to you? So I think that's one of the things that hasn't changed since you and I came into the business. And the ability to have a mentor and an understanding of how the business works, I think is huge. Mm -hmm. I think that when you look at different industries, especially in service lines, whether it be legal, whether it be accounting, traditionally you see associates. I mean, it's in every single industry. And the reason why you do is because being able to learn through osmosis, having somebody who understands the industry, you now can take the theoretical side of what you've learned and apply it on a practical level by that understanding. Yeah. Going out, though it can be a bit of a sacrifice and it can feel that way at times, that you know you feel like you're being held back or that you're being kept in a junior position, the opportunities that that creates, if you look at the people who have longevity in the business, it came from a strong foundation of understanding of how to work your craft and apply it with clients. It, there is no other way, in my opinion, to really learn and to do it well, especially if you want a long career. We all started that way. Agreed. I mean, you need a mentor. You need somebody to teach you the ropes. You need somebody to teach you about work ethic, that it's not, uh, there's no easy shortcut. Yeah. I fully believe that it's the best way to do it. And that's why programs like SIOR, mm -hmm. some of the other organizations out there, as well as internally at the brokerages, are so important. They really are. Agreed. Um, on a national level, thinking about that now when you're looking at it, um, what are you seeing right now in terms of the industry as a whole? Is it is it growing? Is it shrinking? Are, are agents still coming in as much as they were before? Yeah, so I would say that it's growing, but I think the people who are coming in are coming in, I guess, with a different understanding or a different education than they did before. Mm -hmm. So going back to the comment with regards to more of a specialization, it's not as much of a focus on the sales aspect of it but a deeper understanding of the foundation of the real estate industry, that's more what we're seeing. It's the expectation from both employers, brokerages, as well as clients as to what they need to be able to make educated decisions. What that does from a career path standpoint is it does show that some people who are coming into the business, they don't roll right into brokerage. They may go into a different role, whether it be research, yeah. nowadays data and analytics. Maybe they're coming in from a technology standpoint and then they go towards whatever their passion is. Coming into commercial real estate, it used to be that you had limited opportunities. So you would come in and the job opportunities were in maybe in a planning department or it was brokerage or it was working for a developer. Now the opportunities are huge. Yeah. So brokerage may be a focus, but to get there doesn't have to necessarily be a traditional path that we've seen before. It's a great point. I mean, the opportunities really are endless. And we think about the expectation from junior agents coming in now. There is an expectation that they understand, you know, all the technology, yeah. all the um, webinars, all the social media, the suites, the office suites, the Google suites, whatever they might be. I mean, we, I heard stories, and I'm sure you did too, about when our mentor started, it was here's a desk, here's a phone, yeah, good luck. Right. And uh, if you don't own a car, get a bus pass and figure it out. Yeah. Start knocking on doors. And we'll see you in a couple months when you farm the area and hopefully you've done a deal. The hard part is, I think a lot of industries, specifically if we're doing a comparison, let's say to the financial industry. Right. I mean, back in the, uh, I don't know if this was a late 80s or early 90s movies, but Wall Street with Gordon Gecko. Yeah, yeah. And that strong survive type mentality where here's a phone in a phone book and best of luck. 
that's gone to the wayside. It's gone to the wayside in a lot of different businesses. Obviously, we've seen the changes in the financial industry. We're, we've seen the changes in our in commercial real estate as well. That there's more of a sophistication. There's more of a focus on truly understanding what the client needs in who and what to bring together to make that happen. The nostalgia around that, around the, the, the Wall Street or the Wolf of Wall Street yes. or Glen Glary, Glen Ross, you know, first place, here you go, third place, steak knives or whatever it was, fourth place, <laughs> hit, the, hit the pavement. Uh, they're nostalgia for a reason because they're just not really realistic anymore. There's so much more to it. I agree wholeheartedly with your comment about the fact that it's not really a sales position anymore. No. It's not. You don't want your landlords, tenants, clients, buyers, sellers to feel like you're selling to them. I love the comment you made about being a consultant. You're really there to consult them and to guide them in the best direction and to, and to facilitate the deal for them. Agreed. And I think that's applicable across regions and territories. I mean, we can see that Europe, US, Canada, Asia, that's the expectation partly as well because the clients aren't regional anymore either. A lot right. of very large clients, whether it be, you would mention Amazon as an example, mm -hmm. the sophistication, not the geography, that's what an Amazon is looking for when they're trying to make a decision. They know where generally they need to be. What they need is an understanding of what is available there. But in addition to that, what are the variables that they need to make that decision and make it the right one? Because a lot of them are investing incredible amounts of money into their buildings and for long periods of time. So when they make that decision, it better be the right one. Yeah. So we can roll that thought process out across the country nationally, but regionally, are you guys seeing any changes or any differences really from region to region across the country? Not significantly, not, not from a client perspective necessarily. There are some cultural differences and obviously there's market specific differences. In, right. in other words, let's say processes are slightly different. The planning process, some of that is driven by availability. Um, you know, if looking at central business districts, how occupied are they? Uh, how do we make those decisions? What reinvention of office space needs to happen? In others, if you take where we're sitting right now in kind of the Toronto West, yep. it's low vacancy rates, it's lack of development land. And then at the same time, it's the technology and the sophistication that the clients are utilizing. I mean, it used to be previously a large building was 200,000 square feet with 24 foot clear heights yep. for industrial. Yep. Yep. Now you're 36 to 42 foot clear height and 500,000 to a million square feet. That's crazy when you think about it. Who would have thought a million square feet and, but the requirements of something like that, when you think of the impact, is huge. I mean, from a transportation standpoint, that's an incredible number of trucks going in and out of there. The labor that is required, the amount of land that's needed, those are all major variables. And the geography plays a part of that. But the sophistication and the education of what goes into that decisions, that can be applied across the country. And what about automation or AI in those buildings? Is that something that we're seeing a lot more of now in terms of seeing the automation in the big buildings, seeing AI playing a role either in those buildings or vice versa in the real estate industry, commercial real estate industry? Yeah, so we are seeing a lot more of it. Again, this is the great thing, as I mentioned before, about commercial real estate is it comes down to simple math. Mm. So in other words, if something becomes too expensive, if you look at clear height as an example, there's simple math to figure out that I need to build a building to a certain clear height because that extra clear height will make me that much extra money that it justifies paying a higher lease rate. Same thing with automation. If I can automate a process because labor costs become too high or efficiency is that much of a variable in my decisions and the profit center, 
that's when it makes the difference to invest. If something is, you know, let's say can make me a million dollars, but it costs me $20 million yeah. to put in the automation, that may or may not make sense for your business. Costs now, especially with inflation, are getting to the point, though, that we see more and more automation, especially as it matures, and the automation and the technology and the AI plays a major part of it, that it's that much better, that you can see that return on investment period shorten, which justifies the investment. So you mentioned it a little bit, and I'm slightly obsessed with it. You talked about reinventing, reimagining office space. Yes. I, I got to ask a little bit about it because I, I love to talk about it. I'm, I'm a firm believer and really do speak about and being an advocate for return to office, yep. people back in the office. As we've already discussed, I believe in mentorship, collaboration, culture. So these are all things that I think return to office is important. Mm -hmm. What are you guys seeing in your office markets? What are you seeing regionally? And how do you feel about, are we going to have to start switching office building to residential? Yeah, I um, talking about conversion just for a second is I think that it creates some opportunity, but the difficulty to get there in some instances, that's what makes it a little bit harder. So it's not that it's not possible, it's that for some buildings it just doesn't lend itself well enough and it would get to the point where you'd be better off demoing it and yeah. rebuilding than it would be to try to bring it down to a blank canvas and rebuild it for residential. So I don't necessarily see that as an overall game plan that we're going to get rid of all office space and start converting it. I don't think that's going to be the case. Situational dependent. Very much so. Yeah. And I think it's city specific. I think it's even area or building specific as to whether or not that works. I think though that looking at the return to office and what those patterns are looking at, we are seeing a slight uptick with regards to the statistics of people coming into the office more. If you look at uh, the central business districts, if you look at different cities around the world, uh, it changes significantly, whether that be driven by culture, whether that be driven by leadership. There is an uptick there. I'm a big believer in the carrot versus the stick. Okay. From a standpoint of we want to give people a reason to come back into the office. Right. Collaboration is a really big one. So then if that's the case, if I'm an employer, what can I put into place to be able to really encourage that collaboration if that's yeah. what I want people there? That's where the redesign of office starts to come into play. 100%. And I think we're seeing that both from the landlords trying to intrigue and incentivize offices and tenants to come back and also from the companies to try and incentivize their workers to come back and say, to your point, the carrot, not the stick. Yeah. We keep hearing, well, they've mandated us to come back or they're forcing their agents yeah. to come back or they better not force us because people are going to have mass exodus and start quitting. That's fine. Well, then let's incentivize them or let's make it worthwhile for them to come back to the office. We don't want to force them. Let's make them want to come back to the office. Agreed, 100%. I mean, it's looking at what are the variables that would push someone towards remote work versus office work, and then trying to bring those incentives into the workplace to really help with that. We know that from a cultural standpoint, from a retention, from learning, from mentorship, that there's a huge benefit to it. So what do we need to put into place to be able to offer those incentives and to help showcase that? If people are saying, you know what? I really like it better because my coffee at home is better <laughs> or going to Starbucks is going to be better. That's a variable. Then how do we find a collaborative space, spend extra money on a coffee machine, spend some time putting in seating that kind of encourages that versus walking into an office, closing the door and not talking to anybody. Right. So how do we need to change in the office space to be able to do that? And I think it's different industry to industry or company to company. 
Are you guys thinking about anything in your specific offices that you're trying to do to implement to make people want to come back? So we uh, we did a new lease downtown yep. Toronto. We moved into uh, T or 222 Bay, okay. which is a Cadillac Fairview building. Uh, we took about a floor and a half in that building, and we were able to really focus that build around kind of the employee experience. So there's more breakout areas. There's more open areas, large lunchroom slash collaboration type space. There are some offices, right? but the encouragement is the open space. There's couches and chairs and TV and technology all over the place. It was really redesigned for that purpose. It's not the traditional, we're going to put a whole bunch of big offices around the exterior. Offices exactly. And then centered with a bullpen in the middle. Yeah. Cut off from sunlight yeah. and just you come in, you sit down and you do your thing. That's not what this building is at all. And we've also uh, did a new lease in our Calgary office, doing one in the Montreal office. And those are variables when we're planning that. We have a large workplace planning group within Avis and Young yeah. and a consulting group. And it, we've applied it in our own kind of best practices within the company. I think that's great. And I think we're going to find that most people are going to want to see that moving forward. Agreed. Uh, talking about moving forward, any thoughts on what we can see? I mean, obviously, one of the major topics right now is interest rates for 2023. Mm -hmm. What they, what role they've played, how they've impacted the, the business right now, how they impacted the market. What are you seeing in terms of what the impacts have been for 23? And then touch a little bit on what you think was going to happen for 24 for the market. Sure. Um, I think that one of the main things is that we've been through this type of thing before. I mean, we've been through cycle corrections. Yeah. We've done the bull runs and the bear runs. And so that part isn't new. It always changes as to what kind of pushes us into those situations. But those corrections are natural. And so I think that that's where we are right now. There are some variables with regards to the current economy that maybe haven't been there before. Um, whether it's, you know, the size of people's savings accounts, whether it's how people are spending money. What that has forced to a certain degree is almost rolling corrections versus an overall national um, change in the in the economy. And so because of that, I think some of the inflationary numbers haven't been truly reflective of what the overall impact is, except if you start to look at them on industry by industry basis. Mm. That could create opportunity. What that creates right now, though, is a bit of instability or unknowns. So when interest rates are continuing to move up, people don't necessarily know what the feds are going to do the next time around. That brings instability. Yeah. If I'm an investor or if I'm an occupier and I need to figure out where to invest money and I don't know what the variables are to make that financial decision, then usually I sit tight. Yeah. I wait. I make sure that I know all the variables before I make that long-term decision. What I would like to see going into 2024 is stability. Yeah. Stability, whether it's up, whether it's down, just knowing knowing where we're going to be sitting to allow us to underwrite things and allow us to make those long-term decisions, that will help bring increased transactions in our industry. Agreed. That's what we're hearing as well. Let's just know what the playing field is that we're going to be Agreed. dealing with. When we don't know, to your point, nobody's making a decision. People are sitting on the sidelines. It, you know, unless you've got buyers that are sitting there with cash that are willing to spend it. But for those that are worried about construction costs and variabilities and interest rates, it's difficult for them to make a decision. It is. They can't project out. So I agree. 
Um, are you, what do you think in terms of, are they going to start going down? Are they going to be stable? I, again, where it's going to go, I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know if anybody truly knows. <laughs> Probably not. Because each time that they make a change to the interest rate, it always comes out and says, well, we're still waiting to see inflationary numbers and what effect that has. So I don't think anybody truly knows where it is. Yeah. If you look at it historically, we're probably not really far off of where a healthy economy should be, somewhere in this range. Whether it's a little bit up or a little bit down, I'm not sure. But the main focus is that stability. That's what we need. Well, let's see what happens in 2024. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Ted. Sure. <laughs> Major roles, obviously. President, COO, yep. uh, stressful situations. Stressful situations. What is it like having these stressful roles? How do you deal with stress? And what's your outlet? So uh, I would say at this point in my career, I don't necessarily think it's stress. I okay. think that the emotional side of things isn't there the way that it used to be when I started in the business. Stressful is those first couple of years in the business and you're not sure when that next paycheck's coming. <laughs> That's stressful. Or uh, I remember one of the first times I had dealt with uh, one of my agents when I owned the brokerage got into some trouble yeah. or what we perceived as trouble. Yeah. And you know, and you get a lawyer letter or something like that. Yeah. And, and your broker record at that time? And I was your broker, broker record at that time. Yeah. So yeah. I was, I would have been around 26 years old, broker okay. of record and oh, started boy. this company and yeah. I get a letter and I'm going, what did oh, I get myself no. into? <laughs> and, uh, it, it, but you know, you yeah. figure it out and you yeah. move forward and no major issues. And goodness, those are stressful situations. What I'm in now is actually really exciting to me and enjoyable because it's the strategy side. Because I can face things unemotionally and be able to try to make the best decision knowing all of the variables that are in place. So I wouldn't say that, a, that stress is the same way, but it doesn't mean that you don't need an outlet. So yeah. for me, uh, I have two young kids, a okay. uh, dog at home. Yeah. That's the stuff I love. And so I, you know, whether it's going out in the woods or going out boating or fishing or going for a bike ride, to me, that's the really fun stuff. We do a fair bit of traveling when we can, Nice. but just spending time with family for me right now, it's huge. That is my ability to decompress. Ah, I hear you. I'm, I'm in a very similar situation as to you and yeah. it's the same thing. You know, those are the moments that you're like, this has all made it worthwhile. Yeah. And sitting with uh, the family and, and the kids and, and the dog and just kind of enjoying those moments. Exactly. Uh, I think that attitude is exactly why you are where you are because you've got the gratitude for what you've gone through yep. and where you are and it's not stressful for you. It's exciting and uh, I see big things obviously coming for uh, both those positions. It's a really, really great opportunity for you. I think they made an amazing decision on both sides. SIR is very uh, blessed to have you and certainly Avis and Young is as well. Thank you. Uh, this has been great. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining. As always, Ted, my friend, it's been a blast. Thank you very much. Really glad to catch up with you. See everybody on the next show. Thank you very much.